Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and today we'll be speaking about data journalism in Iran with Tehran Bureau's Marketa Hulpachova, who serves as Director of Investigations and Research. She's also Chief Editor at Afghanistan Today, and her bylines have appeared in numerous publications, including Christian Science Monitor, the New York Times, and the Boston Globe. A fluent Persian speaker who hails from Czech Republic and has worked as Tehran Bureau's Tehran correspondent from 2010 to 2014 while pursuing her graduate degree at the University of Tehran, Marketa talks to us about her experience inside the country and her perspective on the latest Iran protests. We also hear about her most recent data journalism pieces, focusing on mapping Iran's economy and the financial portfolio of its leaders. Let's take a listen to our conversation with Marketa Hulpachova now. Marketa, welcome to Conversations with Data. Thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. So, um, just tell us about your role at Tehran Bureau and give us a summary of, of what your um, news outlet is trying to do and you know what languages you cover and who's your audience. Sure. So I am uh, head of investigations at Tehran Bureau, and I have been with Tehran Bureau almost since the start. So Tehran Bureau was um, an independent um news platform focused on Iran that start that was founded in 2008 I joined in 2009 right when you know we had these massive protests uh Iraq Iran sort of like they are now and it quickly became a source of information for anyone who wanted to get any English language news on Iran that wasn't in the mainstream media and we had this unprecedented partnership first with PBS Frontline and then The Guardian, where we were uh, amplifying their Iran coverage. And since 2016, we've been going it on our own. Uh, we've been, we've sort of morphed into an investigative outlet and we focus only on data journalism as it pertains to Iran's economy. And we've been doing that for the past five years now. Our audience is really um, anyone in in the international community who's focused on Iran and also people inside the country. We publish both in Farsi and in English. And uh, we we seek to inform journalists who are um, interested in covering corruption, business and the economy in Iran. And we also target for, let's say, internationally based organizations who focus on Iran as a topic, especially in the field of corruption. We are always seeking to expand this audience. Um, We think that this transparency issue as it pertains to Iran is actually a global issue. And especially in our as we go uh, along in our work and we see so many crossovers with corrupt networks, cor- networks of corruption that go so far away beyond Iran's borders. And so um, I think what we are seeking to do is sort of plug this conversation that we are having about Iran corruption and what that means for governance and the Islamic Republic as a whole into more of an international context. Marvelous. Now, 
the world's attention has pretty much turned to Iran over these past uh, three, four weeks with the death of Masa Amini, a 22-year-old woman who was arrested in September by the Iranian morality police for allegedly not following the Islamic Republic's strict dress code. And I just wonder from your perspective, and also as someone who's lived in Iran, uh, you know, how have these protests evolved and, you know, what makes them significant? Well, I think it's definitely the first time that women's rights and women's rights alone have taken front and center stage in these protests. And I, as many others, am just incredibly awed and incredibly proud of these very, very young women who are just going out there and ripping off their headscarves and just risking everything to um to feel, to get some freedom, to feel, to take control of their narrative, and they're doing it for all of us who've, in, not only all of us who've had, all the all of us women who've been to Iran and had to put you know put on mandatory hijab, but for anyone who's uh, concerned with uh, authoritarianism and what it means and how much it incurs on your personal rights, so. Um, I think what's happened since 2009, when I saw the first wave of protests personally in Iran, is that people are, first of all, uh, we had the protests in, uh, in November 2019, where corruption for the, and economic issues took front and, center, front and center stage. And then we've got these uh, hijab and women's issues that have taken front and center stage. And in 2009, people were still kind of saying, oh, we can live with all this stuff. We just want some reforms. We don't want to rock the boat too much. We don't want a revolution. And that is just not what we are hearing now. People are fed up with the Islamic Republic from what all, from what I can see. And, you know, we hear many, many voices that, you know, say this is unreformable and we want it to end. Absolutely. And, you know, journalists often don't like to speculate or give their personal opinion, but you are, you know, someone who has lived in the country. And I just wonder from your perspective, like, Personally, what do you think? Do you think that this is going to change things inside the country, these protests? So I wanted to talk a little bit about the regime reactions to, to the protests to answer your question, because um, nobody can know what, what would happen if the whole thing falls apart. And there's a lot of, I think, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of fear because there hasn't been any space given to really a real conversation of any what kind of what any sort of democratic or slightly more democratic alternative for Iran would look like. So I'm going to stick to what uh, I think I could see the regime doing. Um, one thing they're already doing is saying, OK, maybe we will give you some leeway on hijab. They're doing, you know, they've, they've got incredible flexibility when they want to, because really all they're concerned with, I think, is staying in power and they will do anything, anything at all to do that. Um, because they have so many economic interests in doing so. And I'll get a bit more into that when we're talking about um, our coverage. Um, so one thing they're doing is, you know, I think they will try to appease the crowd by saying, okay, maybe you don't have to wear a headscarf if you don't want to all the time. They'll still figure out some clever way to say it where it won't be so obvious that, that's, that they're breaking completely with, you know, their um, militantly uh, religious doctrine. And the other thing that is quietly happening already, and that that's going to happen much more if this regime is going to, if this regime gets its way, is this transition towards um, 
let's call it networked authoritarianism or um, digital authoritarianism, where they've already been saying, okay, let's replace this much-hated uh, morality per, uh, police, the Gashta Ershat, with it, art, artificial intelligence, essentially. So not, not very dissimilar to what you see happening in parts of China or all of China, where you have facial recognition software just uh, you know, picking people out of the crowd and saying, okay, this person is in violation of this uh, dress code, for example, or of this minor social refraction. Um, this person is walking a dog. That's not allowed. Let's put them in the system. Uh, there are many, many examples of Chinese companies. Uh, we're actually working on a piece, or we, we just have published a piece um, that I will speak to later that deals with this, that are basically building a surveillance state inside Iran. And Iran is not the only country that it, where they're doing it, but I think it's one of the countries where they've received the most domestic support to build it as fast as possible. And so the regime's sort of uh, outlook on what the future of, of Iran would look like is this, you know, very ordered surveillance state where everyone is getting monitored by cameras and uh, all the time. These cameras have the potential to um, disperse crowds before they happen because, you know, as long as as soon as you see four people that who look like they're unruly getting getting together in public, the police will be alerted and be able to break that up before it becomes a demonstration. Um, there's just many, many examples of what this uh, technology could do to sort of pick people out of crowds and violate their per, their rights before they've actually even committed a crime. And that's, I think, where, where it, that's the Orwellian future that, you know, that, that's uh, the Iranian government at least foresees. So I, I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, journalists can help kind of spread the message that among all this, these protests that are happening, there's also um, this awareness that if nothing changes inside Iran, this is where it's headed. Yeah, absolutely terrifying. And of course, this digital authoritarianism has also played out with internet shutdowns over, over all these protests since 2009. I, I wonder if you could speak to that and what that means for you trying to get information out of outside for your reporting or even what it's like for the people who are, you know, facing these tactical shutdowns and blockages. Absolutely. So um, I, you know, we're not, we're not, uh, I can't speak very much to the infrastructural things that are, and the technical things that are being done to um, sort of circumvent these, uh, uh, these shutdowns. But I can say that as um, data journalists, our biggest fear is the loss of information. And not only the, the disruptions, because we re rely, um, I quite openly say that we rely on big troves of data that are behind, uh, you know, government firewalls inside, inside Iran. And we have trouble accessing them on a daily basis, even when nothing's happening. But when things uh, do start happening, we just start downloading everything we can. And it's a big concern for us, you know, how to get all these archives, all this stuff that's either digital or even, you know, sitting in libraries that are hard to access inside Iran, how to make sure that it doesn't get dis destroyed either in a, in a shutdown in some sort of network transition from one network to another. Uh, but also, you know, in, in case it, there is chaos and anarchy stuff, you know, documents get burned all the time and then uh, you lose huge parts of the story. Um, the way we've been dealing with it so far is, you know, we've been working on 
the Iranian economy or stories related to the economy by and relying on very much the same archives for everything we do for five years. So we just we literally we scrape as much as we can. We download as much as we can. We store it securely. And we encourage everyone in the community that we work with, all other journalists working on Iran to do the same, uh, because you just never know when it's all going to be lost. Maybe not necessarily intentionally. Uh, some of these, some of the tech uh, that these archives use is very weak and it could just go because of some sort of a bug in the system. So we very much want to make sure that there is some, some something that there's this trove of information is at least partially preserved, you know, in the worst case scenario. Absolutely. And I know you don't want to speak to the infrastructure side of this, but I think one thing that did catch a lot of people's attention in recent weeks was Elon Musk tweeting, you know, information about his Starlink satellite internet, which has been used in Ukraine. Um, But when I was speaking to someone recently at, at a conference, they were saying that would cost like $200 million to actually bring to Iran. And even if you were to do that, how do you get these terminals in that are dependent on providing that solution? So that's not viable, right? I think, yeah, abs- my understanding is from uh, from what I've heard so far is that it, inc- it requires people inside the country to take incredible risks to implement it. And I haven't heard anyone sort of um, uh, provide a solution to that. Um you know, if if one per, if there's one specific household or individual or location that's supposed to serve as a hub for others to connect to, that that I think, in my view, is a huge vulnerability for whoever takes that on. And I can't see that. I, I just I'm just not seeing the solutions out there at the moment. Now would be a good time to sort of talk more about your stories that you've done that have required your data journalism hat and your investigations hat. Um, and, and, you know, it would be really interesting to look at what those are. Okay, so um, just a bit of, I, I'd like to talk about our method a little bit before we, I start. So as I was telling you, the data that we use is essentially um, associational. So there's no, uh, there are no numbers. There's nothing, you know, this comes into play, especially when you're trying to visualize it. It's always, um, it's about networks. So, and it's, and it's about individuals and companies and how they're related to each other. Um, And so that means that we, it's what we what we're looking at when we look at our data are just reams and reams and reams of business registration documents. Mostly, that is what we look at, and by just knowing enough about the way things are structured and a little bit about who's who, we start identifying patterns. One of the biggest patterns is um, that you know Iran, the Iranian economy, upper you know you can you might have heard operates as a series of fiefdoms. Is that that's how I at least like to describe it, where, you know, the private sector looks quite huge and there's, you know, thousands and thousands of companies, but actually there will be only a few shareholders acting on behalf of these companies in different capacities. Um, it's not normal for one person to be on the board of 100 or 200 companies, but that's normal in the Islamic Republic. And so through these kinds of patterns, we can identify who actually controls these incredibly large conglomerates. In Iran, there's something called the uh, the, the Bonyabs, which are, you know, these 
that kind of, I would like, I like to say there, there's too big to fail charities. They're supposed to be doing charitable work, but actually they're just predatory conglomerates that they have more power than the state itself. They're absolutely, they, they, they cannot be regulated and uh, will not, be, they, they do not pay any taxes. And basically they're eating up anything that the state makes. They're slowly gobbling it up um, in favor of the individuals who are both politicians, um, religious leaders, and also uh, in some ways, the sort of dons of these big, huge economic conglomerates. And so the association charts that we have to prove this are massive. We're talking sometimes, you know, one data, uh, one sheet will will have literally like mm, 2,000, 10,000 entries of, uh, of either individuals, shareholders or companies they are connected to. And then our challenge is always to just break this stuff up into smaller, more digestible stories um, that you know, that resonate with readers because they, we think it's incredible. They resonate with us when we're looking at this, the story of corruption is just so overwhelming and, um, you know, just so brazen, but, um, it's the challenge for us is always how to make this into smaller stories that also that follow the news cycle, at least a little bit, and also, you know, resonate with a wider audience. So, what sometimes, and I'm going to talk about to take you through a couple of these stories um, that we have done using that use slightly different uh, methods. Just before we kick off, though, it probably would be good to just let the audience realize how important it is because at the moment, right, for regular Persians or Iranians living in Tehran, they're suffering financially, right? Yes. This, there's a huge financial um, crisis for regular people. The middle class is no longer the middle class. And there's also a huge suicide rate as well, from what I, I've heard. Yeah, no, absolutely. I should take a step back and say that um, corruption hasn't always uh, will be as long as long as the Islamic Republic uh, continues to operate sort of the modus operandi of the Islamic Republic but it's just they they these companies have become greedier and greedier and greedier and so um more than uh, other global financial trends and more so than sanctions it's the this corruption that has had an effect on people's livelihoods people do not have access to any sort of welfare state anymore which was the sort of the pillar on which the islamic republic was supposed to be funded on they they're, they're not you know their access to healthcare is almost gone their benefits are gone none of the money they receive from the government really means anything anymore because of the inflation and as you mentioned the middle class is basically not the middle class anymore so all you have slowly are the very poor and the very rich and the very rich are the ones who you know make money off of the system and the very poor are the ones that somehow are paying for it and that is just uh, you know this story has become much more palpable over the past 10 years I think and it's also something that's playing out in the streets uh, you know it, it's not only about ripping off your headscarf it's also about the fact that you have no future in this economy no matter how much you study no matter how hard you work it's not you know you're not going to be given a fair chance because someone's nephew has to get at that place at the big corporation and so on and so forth brilliant okay glad we set the scene for everyone and uh, now on to your Brilliant stories, uh, particularly the one on the Supreme Leader's financial portfolio. 
Yeah, that's the one I wanted to start with because this is just, it was one of those, I think every data journalist, if you're, you know, you're used to pouring through this, like, you know, spreadsheets and spreadsheets of uh, documents and information, um, you sometimes lose yourself in, in the patterns you're trying to identify. You go down a rabbit hole and you're, you wonder, you know, will you ever find what you're looking for? And sometimes you just discover something that is a treasure trove. So I want to just talk about how we uh, found this. This is, um, uh, these are companies, this is a list of companies that are um, associated with the Supreme Leader's Office. The Supreme Leader's Office, it basically is, is at the, so is the sort of power vortex of all of this corruption that I'm talking about. If there is anyone who runs this, it is the Supreme Le Office of the Supreme Leader. They have thousands, again, thousands of companies, we've, we actually have only discovered, we think about 20% of them so far. That's because of the firewalls and the sort of technical um, challenges that come with accessing the information. But uh, the way we even started doing this is that, that but we noticed that um, certain companies had the same auditor uh, and that auditor is listed in the business registration documents. And when we went and found out who the auditor was, we realized that this was the Supreme Leader's Office official auditor. Um, the auditing company is called Mofide Rahbar. And by just identifying all the documents that had this, this particular outfit as an auditor, we were able to discover thousands of companies associated with the Supreme Leader's Office. Companies that um, Iranians would know, um, you know, so there's, there's a soft drinks company, Zamzam, there's, um, there's, there are banks, there's, uh, you know, the, so, uh, something called Taminech um, Temai, which is the social security fund, which is a big financial vehicle for public private enterprises and is supposed to be independent of of the, you know, of the other branches of the government <laughs> and it's completely not. It just, so it's a big story about um, state capture and also a story about how much, just how much the Supreme leader uh, is responsible for what's going on in the economy from which he usually tries to take a distance. He says, you know, he, 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 uh, he tries to say he doesn't play any economic role and this completely debunk, this story completely debunks those claims. Um, and so we, we tried, uh, <laughs> It's also a story about how we visualize big troves of data. If you click on the story, you will see my best attempt at visualizing all this, um, all these thousands of uh, pieces of information that I'm talking about. Um, my it, the challenge is always how to group them, right? What do these things have in common? Can we break them up into smaller units so that the information becomes more digestible? Um, in this case, the vis visualization is of about, I think it's about and something under a thousand companies and they are grouped according to, you know, what conglomerate they, they, under which conglomerate they belong to. Um, you can also in the filter, um, group them by industrial sector. And that's the be best way of, uh, for, um, try to work with this data as a whole. So all our visualizations sort of follow the sa this same pattern. And I use, I currently for the data visualizations use a program called Flourish, which I'm sure some, some of us in the, some of you in the audience are familiar with. Um, 
uh, we, I did try at one point to figure out my own code for visualizations. And I have to say just as a beginner, uh, a beginning coder, I found it much too, much too complicated in terms of the design issues. So um, I think some of these like ready, ready to go white label platforms like Flourish or Canva are much better for my, at least my visual storytelling than trying to code myself. But um, I actually would welcome suggestions from the community on this issue. Absolutely. You have to join our, um, our discord channel where we talk about this stuff, but a lot of people say the same thing as you. Uh, they're, they don't want to spend the time on that. They want to spend it on the story. And if Flourish has already designed, designed something so good, why, you know, what what's the point in really learning it for now? If, especially if you have to get your story out. And um, but yeah, and is Flourish right to left? Flourish is not right to left, but we are able. I mean, I have uh, sorry. That's what I'm looking at right now is the English version, but I have been able to reproduce this in Farsi. Um, it hasn't, um, it hasn't, the right to left thing hasn't really affected uh, the, the way the, the data is presented because uh, at least the, this is, I'm, I'm using their network charts for this and they are, they're just so, you know, there's only three columns. And so it's not really about like how much, how much you're looking at when you're uploading the spreadsheet, if that makes sense. Okay, so I guess I will move on to the second story that I wanted to talk about. The Chinese companies building Iran surveillance yes. state. Oh my gosh, this is terrifying. <laughs> yeah, so this is a this is a story. It's obviously not uh, just us who uh, break broke this story. I mean, there is some sort of a sense of Chinese companies um, being present in Iran and pushing uh, this concept uh, quite heavily. But what it, what was not known is um, just how. Uh, just how long these Chinese companies have been present in Iran and how much of uh, every action, how much support they've had from the regime to do this. Uh, so we, what we published right um, actually a couple of days ago to coincide, to coincide with the protest because we thought it was relevant um, is look at, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, I think it's six altogether. Yes, yeah, six, sorry, seven, seven, China, no, eight Chinese companies that, um, that have, uh, that have founded subsidiaries in Iran sometimes, uh, sometimes as long as 10 years ago, just to focus on implementing various, uh, parts of the technology that, that supports this, um, uh, digital authoritarianism that we were talking about. Uh, and these are companies like Huawei. There's also the you know slightly lesser known ones like Dahua and Tencent, and all, mo mostly all of them are associated with human rights abuses inside China itself. They've been used to monitor and uh, crack down on, on the Uyghur population there in, in various ways. Um, most of them, as I mentioned before, are you know using a, um, artificial intelligence for face recognition software, um, crowd recognition software to um, really sort of identify potential, I wouldn't say perpetrators is a loaded word, but people who are potential enemies of the regime, let's say potential dissidents and uh, build cases against them or crack down on them before they even have a chance to you know, exercise their freedom of assembly or any kind of um, freedom of expression, any, anything potentially harmful to the regime. 
they will have a chance to identify it. The other thing that these these companies are doing inside Iran is holding conferences on safe cities. Safe cities are like these Orwellian things that are actually already a reality in some parts of China, where um, you know all these different technologies are deployed to uh, to monitor citizens uh, and are and citizens are, are then um, signed up for this social credit system, which you might have heard about, where you know any sort of minor infra- infraction, like walking your dog in the wrong place, well, in Iran, walking your dog at all, because dogs are technically illegal, um, would result in you, you know, getting into some database and uh, losing uh, a bit of your social credit. And then that can be used to then limit your freedom of movement around the country, having access to education and uh, social benefits and and so on. So I think it's a very timely piece and it comes out of a again an absolute massive load of um data that we've recently come upon uh it's uh the the data set as a whole is um literally about i think 10,000 companies maybe slightly more now because um we're still working on it and those are just all the different comp- uh chinese companies that are active in iran they cover everything from pharmaceuticals, healthcare, consumer items, from socks to washing machines to cars. I mean, um, my our researcher when she when she was working on it commented, "It's a wonder that there's any that anyone in Iran is still producing anything Iranian because it just looks from this data like the Chinese have absolutely have completely taken over the entire economy, and that's significant because." Um, the the regime likes to say that China is sort of uh, you know not the enemy, but they they like to distance themselves from how much Chinese um, action they're actually having because they know it's unpopular. And so just to see how much uh, how much China has been active in the economy and also to see how many homegrown companies that have have profited from this and how much they're regime linked is uh, is very interesting. And so this is only, so this surveillance story is only the first one we've done and we will be doing many, many more because, as I said, we have literally over 10,000 uh, documents to support this. And can I just ask you briefly, like, where do where does the data come from for your stories or some of these that you mentioned? You know, I I think it, I, I I could be quite open about it. It comes from uh, something called Rusname Rasmi, uh, which is the official gazette. Uh, it's it's a place where uh, basically if you have and if you found a company or have done any corporate board changes or. Um, or also general meetings, you have to report it publicly by Iranian law. And so this gazette has all of that information. Um, There are other uh, smaller, uh, or I would say additional um, corporate databases that just list, um, you know, very basic registration information about um, about companies that we also use. But this Ruznamer asked me, this gazette is the number one source because it uh, gives information about shareholders and changes in shareholders. And that is incredibly re- relevant to how we trace networks and how we trace various people across these networks and then link those people to, you know, the government and so on. So it's kind of like the UK's company's house, which I think people are familiar with. 
Yes, that's a that's an accurate comparison. What what would you like other data journalists who maybe want to cover Iran? What what would your advice be to them? It's the same advice for uh, whether or not you're a Persian speaker. If you're, uh, I think, if you're for anyone who's starting out as a journalist, just, just identify what your um, who you who who you have access to. And what uh, what your specific interest and field of knowledge is that might distinguish you from others. Um, I think it's very important to develop a beat, and you do not have to be an expert in uh, in the area in in the country to develop a beat. I mean, uh, I, I just one thing I want to say as when I was starting out, I landed in Iran. I didn't know. Uh, you know, right from left. I I didn't know the language, but I did have some training in, uh, you know, I just ha- I had an economics background and I knew how to write a, a business story or an economic story. So, you know, at the time, the question was very much about whether sanctions are impacting the economy, whether the, econ- the Iranian economy, economy is doing well, whether it's not doing well under Ahmadinejad. I mean, we all know now that it's not doing well, but at the time, this was an open a question. And so uh, my first story was just talking to people to see how they're surviving in this, uh, you know, in this sanctions economy and what kind of things they're doing on the black, essentially, and how they're, uh, you know, how they're sort of enriching themselves through ethical and unethical ways and how that's contributing to uh, to either uh, the loss of GDP or an uptick in GDP, depending on who, what expert you talk to. So that uh, that's just an example of something you can do uh, when you're approaching any new topic as a journalist, I think is just think, okay, who's in my network? Who can I talk to that other people not maybe can't? How can I give this a perspective that's authentic, but also unique. Um, and that, and, you know, for Farsi language speakers, I would, I would say that applies doubly because um, one of the most secure and uh, authentic ways you can get information is through, you know, your, uh, your family, your friends, people in your business network, just talking to them about their perspectives on things and finding out, you know, what, um, you know, pieces of information that you might have not necessarily had this is an environment in which you can't just pick up the phone and call whoever you want. So, you know, think about ways that you can get information without doing that, without going out of your shell. It's almost the, the, <laughs> the opposite of what you're taught in J school in a way. Exactly. And I just wonder while you were in Iran, did you ever work on a freedom of information story with yourself and another reporter perhaps? Yeah, I have to say I'm a I'm a huge pessimist uh, about uh, the Iranian version of the Freedom of Information Act. So we've actually actively discouraged um, journalists who have worked for us or um, or are part of our team from uh, using that because I just uh, because in ter- like at least in the line of work that we're in, we just don't think it's a good idea to. Uh, call attention to yourself like that. That said, I've heard from others that they've uh, activists, especially that they've had some um, success in it. I do see um, it, it just, you know, on a related note, not necessarily using uh, the, the Freedom of Information Act uh, process, but uh, that the city of Tehran has done at least some token gestures and in making uh, information, for example, about its public contracting 
uh, available. And while I think this is, it, they're a bit token gestures, like I think uh, I personally would call them a little bit of an attempt at whitewashing what's going on. But nevertheless, they're putting this information out there and it's useful and it can be used, even though it only tells maybe a part of the story. Um, the other thing about freedom of information before we move on is that the institutions that we're targeting in our research, which again is the Supreme Leader's Office and these bonyads, these giant financial conglomerates that we're trying to uh, uh, that get information about, they're actually legally exempt from from uh, from this law. So we wouldn't be even if we were to be willing to risk it, we wouldn't be able to get the information we want anyway. Absolutely. And of course, they do ask for your ID, right? And they ask, you, yes. you probably have to be an Iranian citizen too. You have to be an Iranian citizen. So you would have to get someone from Iran to do it uh, or someone who probably has, you know, very live links to Iran and family in Iran to do it. And it, it just doesn't make any sense for us to yeah. go that route. Absolutely. And then, of course, you reveal your hand of what you're covering. Yes. So they can On get ahead of, of it. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah. Never mind the reprisals that may happen from such, yeah, from even a story being published related to that. And of course, you you now speak some Persian or you speak Persian. So it's probably easier to delve through these websites and find information and scrape these, these websites. Um, if there were a, a partner from the West, like a, a news organization that wanted to do something that involved Iran and maybe some other countries, would is that something Tehran Bureau has done in the past and would consider doing in the future or? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is, we did, uh, yeah, I, I would say we were kind of unique in this way in having these partnerships first with um, PBS Frontline and then with The Guardian uh, where, you know, we were sort of their eyes and ears and we were the, you know, that is why we're called Tehran Bureau because we were able to um, fill that role for them and provide those services for bigger media organizations um, who otherwise have a huge access issue when it comes to Iran, right? So you either have somebody on the ground who, who is a native Persian speaker and then they are under massive, massive uh, oversight and pressure from uh, the Iran, uh, Iranian authorities to publish only a certain version of events. Or you have um, someone who is not uh, Iranian getting parachuted in for, you know, a week, two weeks, maximum month at a time. And, you know, also is get, you know, is easily then misled or uh, it can, no matter how great a journalist they are, they're never going to be able to um, write as in depth as somebody who has been there for, for a longer time. So this is the challenge that in the past we, we as, as Tehran Bureau have, um, have sought to address and we continue to seek to address through slightly more innovative, long form investigative journalism. Um, than in the past when we've covered, you know, general news as well. And yes, we remain open to finding a solution to this conundrum and working with international news organizations who um, would be interested. And I'm just curious, like, what are some of the biggest challenges? I mean, you've talked about this throughout the interview, but that you've faced covering Iran and, and perhaps... I don't know. It seems like maybe people have gotten stuff wrong with these protests or they don't understand the Iranian context. Um, so I think uh, something we uh, something we've struggled with in the past is that, you know, 
when we we uh, we cannot uh, openly cover what we think the story is without sounding like we are pro too much too much pro regime change and too um, you know not not willing enough to work with the regime on on some sort of reform and that is not something you know. That is not something that we're hearing from the Iranian people right now. We're here, we're hearing that they very much are, you know, sick and tired of what's going on. But in the international and community, among media and among um, among civil society who are not based in Iran, that there's you know a much more careful approach. Uh, in, in terms of what happens next. And because of that, you know, even outside of the country, there are certain red lines in what you can report on and what you can say without sounding like you're too much of an activist or too much uh, too, too much pro-regime change. Or, and then you get labeled as an opposition media outlet where what we're trying to do is very much, you know, and it be independent and objective. So that is something definitely that, um, we've struggled with in the past. I can imagine uh, that can be problematic. <laughs> um, and I just wonder, um, you know, what's next for Tehran Bureau? Like finally, what, what are some of the big investigative pieces um, we can look forward to seeing from you? Maybe you don't want to reveal all of them, but. <laughs> so the, the general direction in which I would very much like to go, um, you know, uh, resources permitting is uh, is to uncover the sort of international dimension of all these corrupt networks that I've been talking about. We already know where to look. We have significant uh, amounts of information on the topic, uh, but one of the big one of the challenges for us um, is actually legal liability. So uh, you know, I'm sure you've heard other journalists talk about slaps and other ways to, uh, to just you know put put so much. Uh, legal pressure on small news organizations that they're not able to actually proceed with an investigation or shut down altogether due to the huge amount of financial pressure. So we are, um, I think in order to continue the story, especially if we're going to start targeting um, individuals and entities that are based in places like Europe or the United States or, you know, anywhere really outside of Iran, you're exposing yourself to a whole lot more legal risk. And that is actually another thing I would like to reach out to the community with, because I think there are ways of um, protecting yourself as a small uh, media organization, but we have not necessarily found them yet. So, um, yeah, that is something. We're going to be working on in the immediate future. Marvelous. Well, that was absolutely fascinating, Marquetta, to hear your perspective on Iran and data journalism and also the work you, you guys are leading at, at Tehran Bureau. So thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you, Tata. It was a pleasure. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Want to hear more interesting discussions on data journalism? You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. You can also get the podcast straight to your inbox by subscribing to our newsletter at datajournalism.com slash subscribe. The Conversations with Data podcast is an initiative by datajournalism.com, powered by the European Journalism Center and supported by Google News Initiative. That's all for now. See you next time.